Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the impact collaborative. Again, that's info at real hyphen leaders.com. Enjoy the show. We have to come together and realize we are part of one human family and we are facing a common challenge or threat, not enemy, but just challenge. And that the only way that we're going to solve for it is to work together and do things differently. And that's where I hang my hat. But it doesn't take away from those other reasons I mentioned. But there will come a point. You know, it's like in a moment of crisis, Kevin. In a moment of crisis, look at COVID. Everyone dropped what they were doing. They didn't worry about their sales figure for the next quarter. And they came together in a way that was unimaginable before. I think that was a dry run for what is going to be a constant state of being over the next several decades. Welcome to the Real Leaders Podcast. You are listening to episode nine of the Keep It Real series with Real Leaders Top 50 keynote speaker and the CEO of We First, Simon Mainwaring. Now, similar to the snippet you just heard, Simon advises the world's most successful and purposeful companies on how to lead the future. We have them on the show every single month to help you mold your We First mentality to influence the others around you. And in this episode, we cover the topic of climate change and how you need to position yourself as a leader and as an organization to be resilient in an ever-changing business landscape. So before we dive into this episode, I want to make sure you are all aware that Simon's new book, Lead With We, is now up for pre-order at leadwithwe.com. And the first 20 customers to pre-order this book will also receive a 25% discount. So if you found any of our prior conversations stimulating and you enjoyed this one today, go on over to leadwithwe.com and order Simon's new book, Lead With We, the business revolution that will save our future. With that being said, folks, sit back, 
relax, and keep it real. And welcome everyone to the Keep It Real series. Simon, it's been a little while since we've been on the Keep It Real series. It has. We've all been doing lots of exciting stuff, which is fun. Yeah, maybe maybe I'll refresh the audience real quick what this is. Simon likes to join the show. I mean, I think he likes it. You like? I do. You do like it. Okay. I do. Well, he, he took a little hiatus from me, just kind of escaping me for a couple months now. But now he's back, and he comes on every single month. And we cut, we just call this the Keep It Real series because, well, we just want to keep it real with you, with the world, with business, and ourselves. So uh, Simon comes on, and for people that don't know, Simon is the founder and CEO of We First, We First Branding, and his new book, Lead With We. This is the following book or would you call it the second the first book, book that was the the prequel the prequel the prequel that's right yeah a little a little foggy today i think my mind's all over the place and a little rusty on this episode but we're back and uh i'm ready to go now and you know i have to say yeah it was it's great to connect with everyone again and just was finishing up the book over the last couple of months so that's when you kind of really no longer question your personal hygiene and see how little sleep you can survive on and sort of agonize over punctuation, which is probably really unnecessary. But I'm on the other side of that now. So life is good. Now, what's the difference between writing the first book and then writing the second book? Did you pick up any tips? Did you feel like you had more experience? I will share this with folks. Firstly, the first book is sort of a discovery. I'd never wanted to be an author, didn't know how to be an author, didn't know anything about it. And just the fact that you're trying it kind of adrenalizes you because you're so scared that you're going to screw up completely or you're excited about that you can get your message out there. The second book is almost harder. It's almost like that movie, the second movie they say, because you're like, well, if the first one was decent, you want to make sure you do, a, you do a good job. And a couple of lessons from writing the first book. One is, I think that you, a lot of people think you write a book for everyone else. But I actually found, I, I, it took me writing a book to really articulate or unearth or excavate what I cared about. So I learned so much about what is fundamental to me by writing the book. So I think there's a selfish component to it that is really important. And then the other thing is a little trick that I sort of learned on the way, which I think is interesting, is you write a book and invariably you write too much. You have too many words and it goes on too long. Well, I did anyway. And so what you do then is you go all the way through to the end of the book and then you take the last chapter you wrote and move it to the first chapter and then rewrite the whole thing, not completely, but retool it, and you'll suddenly find that you're, you catapult or springboard your thesis that much further forward because you're beginning with the presumption that you would otherwise end with. And I found that a very powerful exercise um, on the first book, and you know, something I kept in mind on this, on this new book, Lead With We, as well. And, and if anyone wants to check it out and very kindly there's there's some sort of context for me there but if the new book is at leadwithwe.com love love people to check it out you can pre-order on amazon now and i'm a much nicer human being for my wife and family now that i've actually got this out of my head and on on paper so i'm sure well that's interesting uh starting at the end starting with the yeah. end goal in mind you know we, we do exercises like that for our customers like when we're writing about you know, who our customer is, what journey are they going to come on? Uh, what obstacles are they going to face in the way? How are we going to solve their pains and needs? We start with the end in mind. Right. Uh, the transformation of our customer is, is maybe that's what 
you know, people need, is that, do you think that's what people need to start doing? Setting that intention, that aim, that injective, especially business owners listening to that and then making decisions based on how to get there? I would say yes. And I also want to sort of extrapolate from what you're talking about with customers and what I'm talking about a book yes. with a book to marketing. I was lucky enough to work at Widen and Kennedy, Nike's ad agency for a number of years up in Portland, Oregon. And I learned so much there and it was probably the most, you know, precious professional experience I've ever had. Just some extraordinary people, extraordinary thinkers. And um, one of the things I learned was, and no one tells you this, but over time you learn it by osmosis. But when you want to create something that's really going to motivate and engage people, you assume what you want to prove. What do I mean? If you want to say, hey, you put on this athletic wear and you'll be able to go out in the rain and enjoy it more, you don't do a campaign saying that. You don't say, hey, this is going to withstand the weather more. You, you assume what you're going to prove and you go, oh my God, this bad weather is so much fun and you celebrate that fun. Mm. I hope that distinction is clear. And the reason it's so powerful is that when someone, a consumer, anyone looks at that, they buy in because you presumptively built that into the experience of the advertising or the content. Mm. And so if you assume what you want to prove, you'll achieve what you're trying to achieve or convince someone of what you're trying to convince them of by getting them engaged in the experience of actually assuming that. And so assume what you want to prove. And there's one other sort of corollary to that that I think is really powerful. I've, you know, I've been lucky enough to be marketing for 20, 25 years. Uh, too much, too many companies today, when they look to stay relevant or engage consumers or use, use new media channels, they build incrementally on what they've done on the past. Like they're building on what they did before. How do we tweak it? How do we do a little bit better? And so on and so on. And this is iterative, incremental process. What we find so effective in our work at WeFirst with clients is that in a fast-changing marketplace and in a challenged future, don't iterate on what the past is because the past has less to do with the future than ever because things are changing so quickly. The pace of change a decade ago, if not 50 years ago, was so much slower. But now the churn is so quick that you're much better served by reverse engineering out of the future. Mm. So if you want to look at a channel or a piece of content or how to position your brand, project three to five years down the track as to what you think the world is going to look like. And then position your company in terms of where you want it to be or your communications, what you want to say. And then work backwards and create the milestones to achieve that and that's what you do today because that future will be here far quicker than you think. If you plan five years out, it'll be here in 18 months, but your marketing will rise to meet the reality of the world that you're in as it is shaped by the future coming back towards us in the present as opposed to you just trying to play catch up to that accelerating future because you're incrementally building on the past. Mm. So reverse engineer out of the future rather than building on the present well, building on the past and also assume what you want to prove rather than try and prove it in your communications. I hope that makes sense, but it took a, a lot of trial and error to uh, come to understand that. Well, it strikes me that what you're describing at the crux, at the core, is sustainability and that's resiliency in the face of an ever-changing business landscape, positioning your organization 
to be resilient when signals or triggers or trends happen in the future. What are some things business owners, leaders, managers, operators should be paying attention to or be looking for in terms of signals or, or trends to come? There's a couple of things which are really important right now. And there's a lot of positive news. And I'm incredibly optimistic for many reasons, including these. Firstly, the investor class has woken up. What does that mean? Here we all are talking about how we do business differently and how we can do business in a way that drives our growth but makes the world better for all the reasons we know. We've got a lot of challenges coming our way. Up till now, there's been really no viable alternative to the way business has been done with all the negative impact of that because the market forces weren't there. You know, mm. brands may want to do good, but consumers still want to buy crap. Sure. Or consumers, conscious consumers want to buy good stuff, but brands just still want to make crap. Or business may want to do good, but the investors just want to make money. In the last 12 months, in part propelled by COVID and the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement, the institutional investor class, these large pension funds and these massive sort of money managers have basically said, you've got to show up in a way that makes you future-proof in terms of sustainability, in terms of climate, in terms of media and social activism by um, you know, employees or consumers. And so you've seen the rise of this um, expectation around ESG, environmental, social, and governance metrics, which is basically in the environment, how are you affecting the planet? Social, all social inequities like you know, police violence against people of color and all these different things. And then governance, which is how you run your organization. And that includes you know, DNI, diversity and inclusion and so on. So anyway, why is that important? Well, the large, big, publicly traded companies, which to oversimplify have been in some ways responsible for a lot of the problems the planet and society faces now, are on point. The investors who put money into them and especially the larger funds and pension funds are, uh, are holding them accountable. And that's important because in its own right, but also because it sends this huge signal to the marketplace that things need to be done differently. And we see that from Larry Fink at BlackRock, the CEOs of the Business Roundtable, the CEOs of B Corps, and so on and so on and so on. And at the same time, the reason that's so important is we have a viable alternative for the first time to the way that business has been done in the past. Why? Because that requisite coalition of stakeholders have come together for the first time, suppliers, leadership, employees, customers, consumers, and investors. It's kind of like saying, why don't we do capitalism better or build a better engine of capitalism when we don't have all the parts before or all the parts won't work together? Well, for the first time, that engine has all the parts and they want to work together. And that means we can execute against the viable alternative to what's been going on. So the investor class, that's a huge signal. And the knock-on effect is this coalition of stakeholders, which is another huge signal to every business out there to lean into your purpose and to really deliver on the ESG metrics, deliver on your diversity and inclusion expectations, and really trust that increasingly the role your company plays in the world will be a massive growth driver because the market forces are behind you. And some supporting evidence to back you know, these arguments uh, that pop to my mind would be by 2025, 75% of the workforce is going to be millennials. Right. 36% of these people say the sole purpose of business is to improve society versus 35, maximizing shareholder value. Yeah. Two thirds of millennials also say they come to an organization 
because of its core purpose. So this is a, a big signal that market right. factors are playing a role in how the consumer, the employee, the supply chains, the value chains, the leadership think about the purpose of a business. But the question now is, where does the actual change happen? And to me, I want to throw out, and I think the actual change happens at the leadership level when CEOs have to convince their board of directors or their investors that this is a long-term play. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it's, it's a very good point. And firstly, I'm going to become a millennial, millennial in 2025. I've just made the decision. Good, um, good. Because... You know, and also to your point, the data, um, they're also going to have the, the vast majority of disposable income, you know, which is what marketers, brands, companies want. They need those people to buy their products. So they don't have, only have different expectations. You know, the disposable income is going to be gravitated in their hands. Hmm. So, you know, it does start with leadership. And there's a couple of responses to that. There's a tension that I notice between how are we going to change at scale through this coalition of stakeholders, which you know is about collaboration and working with competitors and government and civil society and business all working together, this cross-sector participation? That's very high level. But where change occurs to your question is person by person at a local level, community by community. And one of the things I think about a lot is how to resolve that tension between the higher order participation of the larger sectors and the companies and so on, and how that translates to a grassroots level. And I think the bridge really for all of us is that every single one of us has agency for change. And what I mean by that is everyone keeps talking about stakeholder capitalism, but the reason I get annoyed with it is because what it means is it's not just shareholder capitalism, which is about making money for your investors. It's stakeholder capitalism where business serves everybody's interests, including the planet. But most often people talk about it in terms of sharing the rewards of capitalism to make sure the planet does well, to make sure everybody, you know, all sectors of society do well. But We've also got to share the responsibilities. It's not just the rewards, it's the responsibilities. And so my answer to your question and you know, this framing that I did in terms of higher and lower order is that every single one of us, whether we're in payroll, whether we're a supplier, whether we're a consumer, whether we're a mum at home looking after a family, has to assume our responsibility at an individual and localized level, family, community, whatever, to live differently, less meat, to buy differently, you know, products that are from, you know, less waste, circular economy and so on. And then, you know, at a corporate level, a company level or a startup level, every organization has to do, do the same. And so I would reframe your point about leadership and convincing your CFO and your board in a different way. I would say that every single one of us needs to assume a leadership role in our own lives with others. And it's actually part of what I explore in my new book, like lead with we, it's all about, not only how we've got to serve everybody's interests, but how everybody has to participate in that process. So it's everyone acting together in the service of everyone. And you might say, why? Well, here's why. The natural systems, the living systems are breaking down. We see it with climate. We see it with biodiversity. We see it with plastics in the ocean. We see it with overfishing. We see it with so many levels. And the social systems are breaking down around us you know, with all the social inequities and the disparity of wealth and so on. 
basically these incredible systems, our social systems as human beings, as a species, and these living systems, that this planetary ecosystem is breaking down because of the way we treated the planet. We have to work together to protect the integrity of the whole so we as parts of that whole can thrive. And so we've all got to assume responsibility. We've all got to be leaders in our own right to actually restore the planet on which we all depend and the social systems that are a subset of that so that everybody does better. And this isn't about walking away from capitalism at all. It's about doubling down on capitalism, but in a way that actually better serves the well-being of the whole, the living systems and the social systems that make our lives possible. So it's a slightly different answer to your question, but I would ask a slightly different question, which is, you know, it does start with leadership, but what does a leader look like today? Who's a leader? And I'd say that all of us are. All of us are leaders. Interesting. Interesting point there. So you do you think that when you say all of us are leaders, are you just referring to all of us can make a change to make the world a better place and lead the supply as in the organizations as a market force? What do you mean exactly by all of us are leaders? Well, let me put it this way. Every single one of us, you, you for example, you wear many, many hats in your life. Mm. You're a citizen. You're, you don't have kids yet, do you? Ken? No, no. You're not a father yet. No. no. Do you, are you, are you a, do you have siblings? I do. I have an older brother. You're, and two okay, you're a brother. You're a man. Yes. You, you know, we all, you're, you're a consumer. In every single one of those roles, you can make different choices. And you might think, oh, my God, fixing climate emergency is beyond my efforts. But as we often hear with these adages, if we all do a little bit, we can get there. So if you choose to eat less meat for all the reasons we know in terms of carbon and so on, and if you choose to only buy from brands that are, you know, either buy from brands that are not doing harm to the planet, and if you choose only to invest in funds for your pension or your insurance that don't serve, I don't know, um, you know, assault weapons or, you know, um, energy companies that really are extracting from the earth and doing damage, you know, every one of those decisions across the spectrum of your life through the lens of all the different hats that you wear are opportunities for you to, pl- to make a multifaceted difference as an individual. Hmm. Now, aggregate that up across all individuals and all hats that they wear and, and layer on the lens of a company where the company is more purposeful and the way it treats its people is more purposeful and, you know, the, the work it does and the products it innovates and so on is more purposeful. You know, this sounds like a lot, but it's not. It's just the flip side of what we're doing already, which has got us in so much trouble, which is no one's taking responsibility. Well, I'm oversimplifying here, but a lot of us aren't taking as much responsibility as we could. Most companies don't give a damn about the consequences. All of these choices have a cascading effect. We've got to leverage the same cascading effect through conscious choices that will improve our future. And if we don't, I swear to God, Kevin, if we don't, we've got to ask ourselves what the hell is going to happen. Because one of three situations, right? No one's going to change and it's only going to get worse. Mm. And we are in hell's, a hell of a lot of trouble in 10 years' time, like ir- irreversible trouble in terms of the natural systems and so on. Or someone else is going to come along and fix it. Bill Gates with the Gates Foundation or... You know, those politicians in D.C. are going to fix it and they're going to wave the magic wand from on top of their white horse and fix it all. Or we're going to realize that we're all part of the problem 
and that we all need to work together to solve for it. And of those first two scenarios, we've had a lot of time to look at it and we've left things for a long time and they've got worse. We've looked to the traditional custodians of social change like government, philanthropy, nonprofits, foundations, NGOs, and are we getting there fast enough? And are we solving at scale? I don't think we are, which leaves us with the question, well, if it is our future, your future, Kevin, my future, Simon, do we have a responsibility mm. to change the way we do things? And it's not comfortable. Like I haven't had a car for two and a half years now and I live in LA. That's crazy. And yes, sometimes I borrow one of my daughter's cars if I'm stuck or something. But otherwise, these are little choices you make. And I'm not saying it has to be as extreme as that, but I'm just using it as an example. We, we have to realize that we've got responsibility in all of this. So hopefully that answers your question. That makes sense. I think what I took from that is this, and that the most important person in this whole thing is the mediator or the leader in the sense to translate what you just subscribed. Hey, we all got to wake up. Hey, you know, you can make a difference. When I say translator, it's the translator to the person who is unaware. It's the person who is maybe lazy with their lives and doesn't want to throw it in the recycle versus the trash can unconsciously. See, I think humans are just going to be humans at the end of the day. I don't think our brains are all going to get on the same level and the same page to say, hey, we all need to you know, step up and take a stand. Look what's happening in an organization. The more you try to force something with a carrot and stick approach, reward versus fear, people get divided. So I think that you know the leader that you're talking about, when we say that the leader is everyone, that's an inspirational message to somebody listening to this who believes in a better future and a better world with simple day-to-day -day changes that can influence their community, their culture, their niche to start making you know, better decisions. It's true. And, and there's a couple of good points you made in there. One is um, it is a war of inches. In the same way, all the mess we've made is one bad product, one day at a time, 10,000 days in a row, plastic bottles, whatever it might be. Winning it back is a lot of little choices. We don't have to boil the ocean at once, but we do need to be intentional about what we're doing. Why? Because we got kids. I got two daughters, and I don't want them to live in a world that's totally screwed. And, you know, everyone cares about the next generation because that's wired, hardwired to who we are. The second thing is we've got to be positive about it. There's a great TED talk by Per Sorens, which talked about global warming and Al Gore and all the messaging that went on, you know, a decade and a half ago, if not longer, and why it actually disincentivized a lot of people because fear makes people apathetic and they disengage. And it has to be more positive and exciting and engaging and inspirational. And then the third point I'd make is this. You said something interesting. You said people are going to be people or humans are just going to be humans. And I got to say, I'd look at it slightly differently. Okay. We are not learning something new. We have to remember what we forgot because all the science bears out that we are chemically hardwired in our brains to have an empathetic heart-led connection between human beings. We feel it when we hug someone, we feel it when we see someone suffering, whatever it is. It's something that is just fundamental to who we are. It's, it's chemically built into our, into our brains and, and who we are as human beings. There is also a deep connection to the planet. I mean, look at COVID. Everyone was going out in nature to restore themselves for their mental health and well-being. It's just a very recent example of something that's timeless. And so I think over the last several decades, business hasn't served us well. It's become distorted and it's almost disassociated us 
from our true nature. Now, I'm not naive. I'm not going to say, oh, my God, we're all going to click a finger and suddenly people are going to go, hey, I'm going to think about the collective and, hey, I'm going to think about the planet. But I am encouraged by the fact that I do believe that is our natural state. That is our predisposed, shall we say, disposition, you know, if we were given half the chance. And more and more, we're seeing those disincentives, those, that messaging out there, greed is good, you know, your success on the back of somebody else, you know, winner takes all. That is being diluted away and you're seeing all these shared collaborative efforts coming out there, whether it's the sustainable development goals, whether it's what you hear out of the World Economic Forum at Davos, whether it's the business roundtable, whether it's from the institutional class talking about publicly traded companies and their ESG responsibilities, whether it's the younger demographics all saying this is, we are one species, we are a human family, this is our planet, and we have one few, you know, it's, there's just a lot of signals to your question earlier on, which are saying, We've realized that what we've been doing most recently, and by that I mean the last 50 years, isn't serving us well. And we need to kind of lean back into who we are and our collective, collaborative, um, fundamental nature. And that is actually the through line to a better future. I understand that too, but I also think that the fundamental nature of business was to maximize shareholder value and was to increase profits. It was for people searching and searching for the treasure and until they have that treasure, they can go back to what their service or their intention was. I well, think that's, that's, Milton, I, that's Milton Friedman talking about that. That's one person's opinion that was adopted as the mindset of the day and in service of a, a shrinking number of people, it was a way to justify lining their own pockets at the expense of everybody else. But there was a moral dimension to that that, was, that is never quoted. And what... What all the business leaders are saying right now, from Mark Benioff at Salesforce to Larry Fink at BlackRock, the largest you know, money management firm in the world with almost eight trillion, $9 trillion under management, they're saying is that they didn't factor in what is called the negative externalities of business. Like this idea that business somehow lived in a bubble and you could do what you wanted and make money and you could just ignore the consequences to people, communities, the planet, our future. Everyone has called BS on that. Now, they knew it intuitively all the way through, but if we're not, you know, to be cynical, too many people are making too much money to give a damn to do anything different for too long. But now we've got problems that are bigger than ourselves. Now, for the first time in human history, just like COVID, we are all facing a challenge which is larger than humanity itself, which is the climate emergency. And you know what? The climate emergency, just like COVID, does not care where you want to go to holiday in, in Europe this summer. It doesn't give a damn. It is dispassionate. It is effectively digital. And, they, and there is a businesses waking up collectively that if we don't respond to this, then the consequences are going to be just absolutely catastrophic in terms of people's lives and on business itself. So I think... Um, I think we're waking up out of a survival instinct. I think we're waking up out of greater awareness thanks to social media and, and so on. And I think we're waking up in the last 18 months even more quickly because COVID and the Black Lives Matter movement has thrust this into the front of our face and said, wow, if something goes wrong, trillions of dollars can be wiped off the global markets in, in a matter of a week. Millions of jobs can be lost around the world. Half the companies in certain industries can be shuttered. Airlines can stop, payroll can stop, companies can close, restaurants can disappear, 
like we have just had a direct experience that we are not a, indestructible, that we are not, you know, um, imperishable. Mm. And I think that's been a very powerful lesson. Absolutely. And I, I, I agree with you. I think that the market will correct based on what you just mentioned uh, when we do wake up. Uh, the point I was trying to make is internally, mm -hmm. as a human being, when you see all of this chaos going on outside, you know, there's only a finite amount of hours in the day. And if I'm trying to provide, you know, a, a home, a, a food on the table for my family, I've already got a big load. And it's human nature to work in my self-interest to make more money for my family. The thing is, is I think obviously what you're saying, I live in this space, we breathe in this space. I took a job that was much more purposeful and I am much more happy with it. And that's something that I don't think yet has crossed over into the greater part of society. I mean, I, I'm wrong with that when I say that because obviously two thirds of millennials are saying they wanna work for a company with this whole purpose. But when it comes to a self-interest perspective, that's what's so dangerous. And that's why I think it's up to people like you to articulate you know, this mindset for the greater good that you're going to have a better work-life balance in your life if you can ask, keep peeling back the layers of why you wanna make that much money. That, that's, that's what I was trying to say. Yeah, I know. I agree with you. And, and a couple of thoughts there. Something I learned in the research for the book is that indigenous people actually look at life through the level of um, sufficiency, whether they're, you know, in, in the poles, whether they're in South America, whether they're Aboriginal in Australia, whether they're in Canada, because they have this symbiotic relationship with nature where and they actually look at it. I was talking to Lynn Twist, who, wrote, who, who leads the Pachamama Alliance, which is this alliance that protects the headwaters of the Amazon. And she was saying that to, tab, to take more than you, you need is actually seen as a sign of insanity amongst these communities right. because it comes at the cost of the ecosystem and the community. Now, that's a very powerful lesson and, and some might say a more extreme example. But I want to double down on what you're saying. Here's the reason this isn't going to work. And this all just sounds lofty, good intentions. The reason it isn't going to work is there is an ever-shrinking number of people at the top that are just benefiting disproportionately out of the way things are being done. They're making God's money, like gobs of it every day, just drinking from a fire hose and even more so in the last 18 months. And do you think they're going to go down without a fight? Do you think they're going to change just out of the goodness of their heart? No way. Although it is instructive to see the three richest men in the world, you know, Bill Gates with his foundation, Elon Musk with his companies like, you know, Tesla and Solar, Solar City and so on, and also um, Jeff Bezos now with the Climate Pledge, not to mention the 220 plus billionaires as part of the, 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 the billionaire pledge to give up 50% of your fortune um, to charitable causes that was started by Warren Buffett and the Gates Foundation. It's really instructive to see those at the top now doing that. Some might say it's a luxury they can afford, but nonetheless, that's the first disincentive. The second is all of those markets around the world, typically in the developing world, if that's an appropriate term still, where they are like, wait a second, wait a second. We haven't had our, our day at the banquet table of capitalism yet. You guys have been gorging on this stuff, buying your washing machines and cars and everything else that you want in, in, in your sort of first world, shall we say, experience. And what about Brazil? What about India? What about China? What about all of these emerging middle classes? We want to have that, that day with our nose in the trough, you know? Um, 
And then thirdly, to your point, the vast majority and growing number of people in the world, if you look at the disparity of wealth, don't have the luxury of thinking this way. They're just trying to put food on the table. They're just trying to pay their bills. And, you know, this is especially true of people of color and multicultural communities, you know, and all the social inequities that we've seen play out of the last year. So I think there are very powerful forces and reasons that work against this sort of almost luxurious, almost indulgent presumption that now we're all going to get together and fix the world. Mm. But I would say this, despite all of that, I believe we've reached a point of, of urgency and risk where we're facing an existential threat to humanity's existence and the consequences of the breakdown of the natural ecosystems, whatever lens you look through that, like oceans or biodiversity or climate patterns, where we have to come together and realize we are part of one human family and we are facing a common challenge or threat, not enemy, but just challenge, and that the only way that we're going to solve for it is to work together and do things differently. And that's where I hang my hat. But it doesn't take away from those other reasons I mentioned. But there will come a point. You know, it's like in a moment of crisis, Kevin. In a moment of crisis, look at COVID. Everyone dropped what they were doing. They didn't worry about their sales figure for the next quarter. And they came together in a way that was unimaginable before. I think that was a dry run for what is going to be a constant state of being over the next several decades. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think the change also needs to come from within large organizations. There's no doubt about it. I mean, we can have as much change as we want on the outside protests, all that good stuff. But unless you're making, you know, actual market changes where you can provide a product that is sustainable, ethical at a better price with better quality, nothing's going to change. So no. I, I just straight up. I mean, I, I'll buy coffee because, you know, I'm balling on the budget here and I need to buy the cheapest coffee I can find. Like I would go out and buy fair trade coffee, but that stuff costs a lot of money. Tastes yeah. better, yeah. it's better quality, but it's not at a competitive price. So, you know, I, I, you know, we can have all the philosophical debate we want and everyone knows it's the right way to go and that's the future. But unless entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs are building, the smart people in this world can innovate and build things to drive market change, supply and demand down, bring down the price to a competitive level. I don't see this changing. Well, here's the thing. I would say yes and. The reason the coalition of stakeholders coming together for the first time is so important is to get those economies of scale, to bring the price down, to make fair trade coffee yes. price competitive to the more commoditized brands out there. It takes the participation of all stakeholders. Why? You need investors to invest in companies that then satisfy the rising market or consumer demand for fair trade, organic, you know, GMO-free coffee so that they actually have the momentum and they have the scale to be price competitive. But as long as those other market forces, those other sectors aren't rewarding those entrepreneurs or intrapreneurs, we're just kicking the can down the road. And you're right, everyone is budget conscious. And so they will default despite their best intentions to what is the cheaper price for all the reasons you mentioned. That's why I'm so excited about the investor class coming to the table because when you look at them investing in clean beauty, if you look at them investing in clean food, if you look at what's happening with plant-based alternatives across the board, whether it's mm. possible foods or beyond meat, if you look at the big 
you know, take out kind of industrialized food chains migrating that way. I mean, you wouldn't even imagine that five years ago. And I think the half-life of this change is going to keep shrinking, just like the half-life of technology. Because as you said, millennials and Gen Z are coming through. They're values-driven. They've got a vast proportion of you know, disposable income. You've got the investor class coming through that are also millennial and Gen Z. You've got millennials and Gen Z, not slacktivists in T-shirts at 18 years old anymore. They're like 40 years old and they're running companies and they're defining... They're starting companies that are fundamentally purposeful by nature. So this demographic shift and this coalition of stakeholders is starting to unlock the power of the market forces to make those better for you and better for planet products, not only competitive, but kind of um, leaders, because I think up till recently, people would buy a better product. The product had to be great. There's, you know, purpose isn't a silver bullet. But if it was purposeful, then that would seal the deal. But it wasn't the first reason they'd buy a product. And there's a lot of data to support it. But now, as all of these different elements are coming together, it's really a line call. Some consumers will pay a premium for better products because that makes them feel good about the role they're playing. Some will buy the products that are just as good from a quality, taste, experience point of view, but because they're sustainable or whatever. And then those that are not helpful, that do harm the planet, are struggling to grow market share, and they're sort of falling by the wayside. And so we always need to look at these issues, not as a discrete moment in time, but as an evolution in a conversation between all stakeholders. And I think it's trending positive in terms of where we need to go. And I think we're at the tipping point as to those various factors that play into what makes it viable for a good for you, good for the planet company to actually compete on all, on all fronts. And I think we're going to see more of that. And when you see what's happening in the private equity world and the venture capital world and what they're enabling now, and also things through blockchain that are really starting to democratize, you know, digital currencies, but also impact through digital currencies, it's super exciting. Definitely. I think that's a great example too, especially with like Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger. Uh, they're being able to present a product where the value is much more than the cost, where uh, and I think really that's the ultimate goal of any entrepreneur, and that is to create comparables. If I have a house for rent that I'm trying to rent out, I'm looking at two different homes or I'm trying to purchase them. One right. relies on clean energy and self, is self-sustainable, and the other was built with traditional supplies and uses utility gas and electricity. I'm probably going to go with the one that has clean energy because it's the same price and, you know, I'm feel good about that environment. It's all about creating comparables in the marketplace. And I think you're right. We're at that point where these premium products, they're, people are kind of understanding the value of eating a plant-based burger, how it doesn't sit in my stomach, how my weight gain doesn't happen. And now I'll pay a little bit extra. So over time, the price that of drop. that product will come down. I think you're right yeah. about that. Yeah, and you know, I uh, as you know, you kindly mentioned, I have my podcast lead with we, and all I do is I interview mm. CEOs and CMOs of all of these exciting companies coming through, and this is what they tell me: they're like they get the right private equity or venture firm behind them to support them to get that beachhead in the marketplace, and then they kill themselves for five, ten years to build out that mind share and market share, and then the market forces start to increase it, and the economy of scale comes in. And then they can compete. Hmm. And this is a pattern I've seen over and over and over again. And so coming back to this point about agency and the little actions we can all take, you know, 
Every time we support one of these brands, we are enabling them to scale and enabling them to unlock those economies of scale to make them more price competitive. Here's where I get concerned, Kevin. Like a lot of the roadblocks to this sort of work, whether it's in the energy sector, food, textiles, footwear and apparel, is regulatory, it's, it's, it's policy. Whether it's carbon emissions with vehicles or supply chains with you know, agriculture or whatever. And I worry about government right now because you know, it's a really exciting time in terms of what the Biden administration is doing around climate. And everyone has difference of opinion, but we really are addressing it and taking it head on. But government could play a much more active and positive role in enabling these, these changes because a lot of the time companies now find themselves having to advocate for changes in policy and regulations that sort of unlock these opportunities or enable industries to retool themselves. Mm. And so if I look at all you know, civil society and philanthropy and, and business and, and, I, and I look at government and I go, I would love them to be at the party even more effectively. So this comes back to agency. It sounds so obvious, but who we vote for at a local, statewide, national level makes a huge difference. I don't care what your politics are, but like just know and have a look at what they're doing because you know, they're the people that can unlock the regulations that will empower the industries to change more quickly. So it's all interrelated, that coalition of stakeholders, it's rewards as a function of responsibilities. Absolutely. The government is a stakeholder. There's no doubt about it. And we're at this point in time where we need to unlock innovation. It's crucial right now. And you see what's going on with uh, the, the Tesla's uh, X price. You know, innovation is key. The, the best in the business know how crucial it is to save this world. And if we don't have the other stakeholders playing their part in this role, we're not going to get it done. So I think everyone's uh, at fault here. When we're not, and I'm going to, I have never seen a more exciting time for innovation right mm, now. Sure. You know, we could sit here, Kevin, and we could like, you know, slash our wrists and just go, oh my God, there is just so many issues that are so complicated and systemic and entrenched and inert, we're going to throw up our hands. Or we can do what the Elon Musk's of the world and others look at it and go, that's a market op marketplace opportunity in disguise. And, you know, there's all the data around it. The Sustainable Business Commission came out and said, executing against the sustainable development goals is a $12 trillion opportunity. Yes. And if you look around at all of these companies, that just look in the shopping aisle or when you're doing your e-com shopping the next time and look at, you know, the gluten-free, the plant-based, all of these different categories, they're all solving for something. People don't want sugar in their diet. They don't want obesity. You look at Uber or Lyft and, you know, you know the, the role of cars. And, it, you know, it's just, you've just got to look at it with an entrepreneur's kind of lens rather than someone who feels like that they don't have any agency or, um, uh, power to change things. And I think what I'm excited about, you know, I've got an 18 and a 20 year old daughter um, and they're all crazy entrepreneurial, all their friends, they're all like at it. They are just yeah. all over yeah. it. Like I was so nervous at 20, I was more worried about my haircut than worrying about trying to, and these kids are just on fire. And so I, I feel very positive about that as well. Yeah, the resources are out there. And when we think about algorithms and we think about people and how people tend to go based on uh, current formulas or current uh, repetitions or just patterns in general, people follow patterns. And uh, 
if you are an entrepreneur out there, you have all the resources. You have books, you have audio books. Yeah. Everything is at your hands. This podcast is with Simon Maywaring. You can learn right. so much about society, about the environment, about governance, about stakeholder capitalism. You have everything you need just to give you yourself the mindset to take that first step. It is true. And you also have a great any support network. Sorry? At any age as well. Yeah, at, at any age. And you're also seeing these entrepreneurs at age 5, 10, 12. I saw, I read this article about an influencer who actually started his own fund now and they're investing in other influencer companies and bringing a coalition of 100 million consumers to the Like these young kids are looking at it. That made me sound old, right? Those kids today, those kids today, they're so clever with their gadgets. Um, no, but they're so self-possessed and so self-assured. And I think that's appropriate, A, because the barriers to entry are so low, but also because we're out of time. And I think when you hear Greta Thunberg and others talk about these on very public forums and really calling out older generations, they are very mindful of the, the time that they're working against, the, 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 the scale. Um, you know, for, just think about it, how complex and entrenched the way we do businesses right now with these very sort of costly supply chains with all of the, the infrastructure and all the negative effect on the environment, to unwind all of that while you're doing business takes time. But if you look at companies like Orsted, you know, which is an energy company that used to be an oil and gas company that's now the largest wind generating company in the world, is actually number one on Harvard Business Review's most responsible companies. Like these, these it is possible, it is painful, it will, it is profitable, and I, in my mind, in a lot of ways, it's inevitable. Companies really have to, like you said, be self-assured. They have to understand who they are and change their identity, their internal core, everything that's inside of them to then make that change first. Because if you try to make that change without changing the inside, it's not going to yeah. work. Just case, case in point, it's, it's pretty simple. Yeah, to it's see true. That. I mean, we're seeing company cultures become more human through the lens of DNI and chief people officers, tragically because of the Black Lives Matter movement and the murder of George Floyd and, and so many other incidences since. Um, but that also flows up to leadership and something I'm fascinated. I'd love to write a book about it at some point, but there's not enough time. Like, what is that leadership mindset today for the CEO and so on? And I think you're seeing a lot of CEOs that used to just to be Indra Nooyi at PepsiCo and Richard Branson and Howard Schultz of Starbucks and Paul Polman of Unilever. I actually made a promise to myself that I would, you're not allowed any Paul Polman quotes in any speeches you ever do anymore <laughs> because it's just, you know, you, you know, it's overplayed. Um, but uh, now we're at a different point where I think every board and specifically every CEO and arguably CMO, that they have to be a vocal voice for the company. Why? Because just in the last year, you had these massive bushfires or year and a half, you had COVID, you had um, you know, Black Lives Matter movement, you had immigration, you had all of these issues that were thrown into the face of companies and business more broadly, to which on the strength of the expectation of even just their employees, let alone consumers, companies had to be articulate around what they stood for. Mm. In which case, leaders are now being asked on a personal level Oh my God, what do I think about this? And what does my company think about this? And so what do I, what's our tone of voice? When do I stand up? And what do I say? And so in our work at We First with companies, we actually work with them and we go, okay, what's your tone of voice? Because at one extreme, you might be like kind bars where you just want to spread kindness. And that's just 
persistently positive. Or at the other extreme, you might want to be like Ben and Jerry's that really called out white supremacism, or Patagonia that sued the previous president over giving mining access to public lands. Where in that spectrum do you fall? Mm. And then once you know that brand voice, what issues do you stand up on? You know, when do you put up your hand and actually say, no, that's not okay? Not demonizing others, but just leaning into, in a positive sense, what you stand for. And also, you know, what are the table stakes? You know, ESG, your sustainability credentials and your DI, diversity and inclusion credentials, are just table stakes now. You've got to have those in order. So, as a CEO, as a CMO, no matter how large your company is, you're sitting there going, oh my God, I've got all of these issues coming at me like a fire hose, and I've got all these new table stakes expectations, and I've got to run my business. How does that all work together? And that's a, that's a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for folks listening out there, when we, when we say the word like real leaders, you know, we're thinking authenticity, we're thinking inspiring, uh, being bold. Those three words are really three pillars for us in, in our organization. And, you know, if, if consumers and employees are increasingly wanting you to be transparent with them and they're increasingly wanting to be authentic for who they are at the workplace, <laughs> you've got to be yourself and you got to understand who you are. And that self-assuredness, I think what you touched on earlier is something that leaders increasingly, I think, need to be vocal about if that's in their wheelhouse. So I look at it in the Von Chouinard and you know, that's somebody who would leave the company for nine months and say, go run it. And because I want to go hike and, and climb and, and surf the world. Um, that's just him being himself. You look at Phil Knight, you look at all these different examples, people just wanted to be themselves. And through that, it's just it's self-assuring for other people to see that it's it's gravitational it's a gravitational pull when people say oh yep. that guy's being himself and he's you know doing that so whatever as long as he's being himself that's all i care about um, as an employee of that organization that they're leading for i have to say yeah i you know was lucky enough to work at Wyden and kennedy on nike at their ad agency years ago and i only ever had one meeting with phil knight and i was so nervous i was like you know this mythic person sure. you know who is arguably out of the spotlight all the time and I did come away from that at that one meeting. I was just uh, one of the minions of many, but like, you know, looking at, he was just someone who was completely comfortable being himself and in his own skin and standing up for what he stood for, you know, what he believed in. And I think if you look across the headlines with all of these issues that are coming up through the political lens now, I mean, look at Georgia and voting and all of these companies coming together around that. Look at the coalition of airlines coming together around climate. Like it's everywhere. All you've got to do is trust that you are enough. Just trust that you are enough. And if you, because any company, if you're a founder or a CEO and so on, to some degree, without overstating it, that company is an expression of who you are. And just lean into that and trust. Because when you get that alignment between who you are and what you do on a daily basis inside the company, you become incredibly powerful as a leader because there's that integrity in the truest sense of the word. The integrity is the moral values you stand for, as well as the rigor or the defensibility of the system itself. You are pure in that you are authentic to who you are and the company becomes an authentic expression of that. And that is so powerful for your internal culture as well as your stakeholders. And so, you know, I think there's some consolation in that. All of us as leaders can just go, we don't have to be something over there. We don't have to make up something that we're not. We just have to, get, to educate ourselves about the reality of the landscape in which we find ourselves and get very clear-eyed about that. It's not the 90s anymore. It's not the 2000s. It's not coming back. And the future is looking very challenging. And then just trust that we are enough and show up that way 
And in my experience and in all our work inside companies with CEOs and SLTs and ELTs and those sorts of things, executive leadership teams, as soon as you do that, it's a permission slip for everyone else to go, oh, thank God. Now I care about that too. And that's great. Really? I don't agree about that. Well, let's talk about that and let's work it out. And then suddenly you humanize your brand. You humanize your culture. It informs your communications. Your consumers respond in a different sort of way. And this is when you can be a movement out there that doesn't just move products. It shapes culture. And that's where the real power is. And folks, if you didn't know, I hope you should know by now, that's why we call it the Keep It Real series here on the Religious Podcast. Simon, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today. Great dialogue. I love the exchange today. Yeah, really, really fun. If anyone would like to check out the new book, I really do lay out what this can look like and how it all works together. I'm going to put the longest link in human, in human history in the chat here and you can check it out. Um, I think we all need roadmaps right now. I think we, we are, we're, we're awake and we're trying to work out how to go ahead. Hmm. And so I spent the last three years on the strength of all the work that we've done over the last decade with these leading purposeful companies and sort of laid out a roadmap for that. So if you're interested, please do check it out. You can pre-order it now on Amazon. But Kevin, thanks for the chance to you know talk about this stuff. Um, I don't think there's ever been a more exciting time than now in terms of the scale of the need, the urgency of the clock that we're working against, and and you know, the, the upside of the marketplace opportunity when we solve for these things. So I would encourage everyone to unlock their inner entrepreneur or intrapreneur and be that agent that you can be inside your company or with your own company, or, you know, inside someone else's company or with your own company and be that catalyst because you'll be shocked at how many other people will, will join you in an effort and feel the same way. And they're just waiting for somebody to start thinking and acting this way. So Thanks for the chance to share some thinking again. And glad we're glad we're reunited after a little bit of a hiatus. We're reunited, exactly. I knew it would be a good one. It's just been so long. Like uh, we're all balled up. We just want to get I was very alone with my Ugg boots on and my cat. With, with your thoughts. With your <laughs> Late thoughts. at night doing this. So back out the other side now. Here, here's a closing point or a closing question, rather, uh, that I would ask you. And much of our conversation today was about being authentic at the core and that being uh, attractive to all different stakeholders and that's the mindset switch that people are trying to make a transition to and find themselves in or are already doing a good job of here's the question what is a signal that would help a leader understand that they are going away from their moral compass you know i think one of the true gifts of being a human being is that we have this kind of little computer up here going on and we have our heart, but we also have our gut. And, you know, if you read about these extraordinarily successful billionaires or entrepreneurs and so on, a lot of it is instinct at the end of the day. And I think we know when we're going off course, I think we can either feel it or we have that little voice inside of us or at the point of decision where you might compromise or dilute what you stand for, that little signal shows up, that little moment of caution. And I catch myself doing it all the time too. And I think you do listen to that. And the reason I think it's powerful is because it's not only course correction for you, it's a signal to the world, the universe, without getting woo-woo, as to what you're really about. And the more specific you are as to the boundaries, the lane in which you play, the more of that will show up. 
But if you're more diffuse, if you're diffuse, if you're more diluted, it's hard to get more of what you want. Mm. And so think of your decision making as a leader as kind of the apex of a prism where all the energy and light goes into that mm. prism and how mm. focused that prism yeah. is will define that rainbow of color that comes out the other side. But if it's not focused, it's just going to be muddy. And so I would trust that little voice or feeling you get when you're going off course, not just because the course corrects you, but because when you make those decisions, you're sending an intention to the world, to the universe or whatever. I want more within these clearly defined lanes. And then suddenly more and more of those opportunities will come your way. You'll be in the flow of what you do. People will know you specifically for where you play and it'll, you, you'll own that marketplace opportunity. So great question. For Simon Maywarn, I'm Kevin Edwards. I see you go out there and always, folks, keep it real next time. Thanks. Bye. And thank you, good people, for... And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast with Simon Maywaring. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of the Keep It Real series with Simon Mainwaring. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And folks, if you want to catch any of these live interviews, just go online to realers.com slash podcast and click on any upcoming interview to attend the show live. Apple Podcast listeners, help me out, leave a review. And for anyone that wants to contact me about leadership or guests that they want to see on the show, my email is b at real-leaders.com. That's b-e at real-leaders.com. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader and stay tuned for the next episode. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a 100 dollar a year subscription hit the link in the show notes enter in coupon code podcast 20 to receive access to all of real leaders to get you to the next level thanks for listening to this episode and always keep it real